Let us pray. So, Father, indeed, we do ask that you would fill our hearts with rejoicing because we, through Christ, are citizens of your eternal kingdom. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you this morning. Good morning again to everyone watching via the live stream. Father Jed and his family are on vacation for a few days, so I'm um, flying somewhat solo, not as much as in first service this morning, um, but it is so good to see all of you. I'd invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them or reach under your pew for one of the Bibles that is there and turn to St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 5. We're continuing today in our study of the Beatitudes from Matthew's Gospel, from what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. About five years ago, an article appeared in the New York Times entitled, Calling Yourself Humbled Doesn't Sound As Humble As It Used To. And the article in part states, Lately it's pro forma, possibly even mandatory, for politicians, athletes, celebrities, and other public figures to be vocally and vigorously humbled by every honor received prize won, job offered, record broken, pound lost, shout out received, like copped and thumbed up. Diving at random into the internet and social media finds this new humility everywhere. A soap opera actress on tour is humbled by the outpouring of love from fans. Comedians are humbled by big laughs. Yoga practitioners are humbled by achieving difficult poses. Athletes are humbled by good days on the field. Christmas volunteers are humbled by their own generosity and holiday spirit. And yet none of these people sound very humbled at all. On the contrary, they all seem exceedingly proud of themselves, hashtagging their humility to advertise their own status, success, sprightliness, generosity, moral superior superiority, and luck. When did humility get so cocky and vainglorious? The article asks. But well, today we're looking at true humility. We're looking at what God's Word has to say in the third of the nine Beatitudes or blessings at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. And our, our verse today that we're focusing on is Matthew 5, verse 5, where we read the words of Jesus, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. When you hear the word meek, what comes to mind? What do you picture? When you think of meekness, does weakness come to mind? Do your thoughts, do my thoughts automatically move toward negative images and associations of someone who's a pushover or a doormat? Biblical meekness is indeed humble, gentle, and considerate. And it stands in opposition to unbridled anger, harshness, and brutality. And it is a mark of Christ's rule in our lives. The fact is that the world we live in associates meekness with weakness. It's not new in our day. This was the case in Jesus' day as well. Pagan Roman culture and Greek culture certainly looked at any showing of meekness or humility as weakness. And even in some of Jewish culture at that time, they'd become untethered to the truth of Scripture and viewed meekness as weak weakness. 
Now, Jesus' teaching here, as we've talked about every week, was directed primarily to his disciples. But remember, there was a much larger crowd, again, overhearing his teaching. Matthew 4.25 confirms this, where it says that great crowds gathered around. And there were groups in Jesus' day among the Jewish community who wanted to overthrow Rome by force. And some of those people were likely present in this crowd, checking Jesus out. Among peasants, these groups included the brigands and later the zealots. Among the religious aristocracy, there were the Sakari, who I spoke of a few weeks back. And many of these groups believed that somehow they were doing God's will and even ushering in God's kingdom by force, by violence and terrorism, through nationalistic pride. Jesus is indirectly but clearly confronting these groups of people who are overhearing what he is saying refuting their distorted perspectives and what he says here in Matthew 5. But even more importantly, hear this, even more importantly, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, to those who were coming to believe in him as the Messiah, the Redeemer sent from God. To them, to his followers then, and to every single one of us today, Jesus is saying that meekness Biblical, godly meekness is not an option. Did you hear that? Biblical, godly meekness is not an option. For the genuine disciple of Jesus Christ, meekness must be an integral part of our daily lives if we are really following Jesus. Biblical meekness means walking in love. True disciples of Jesus walk in love. Not just love for those who love us, we also walk in love for our enemies. A little further along in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, beginning verse 43, Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. This is Jesus' command to us, to you and me. Something which is certainly not easy. And to be very clear, I am not preaching at you or to you. I am together hearing this for myself because I don't have these things mastered. Full, let's, let's be honest. Let's have a full confession here so we get a right frame of reference. But this command is not easy and actually... It's impossible except for God's grace at work in us, transforming us and remaking us and changing us. And when we talk about meekness here and about loving our enemies, we're not simply talking in theoretical terms. We are not somehow talking about mere mental acquiescence here. Rather, Jesus is talking about you and me loving our enemies through real, tangible, active and meaningful demonstrations of his love. This is a mark of meekness and of godly strength. The late Catholic Archbishop Fulton Sheen, who back in the 1950s and 60s had a program on television, um, in a little book he wrote on the Beatitudes, which a seminary professor of mine recommended to me, says this. Meekness is not cowardice. Meekness is not an easygoing temperament, sluggish and hard to arouse. Meekness is not spineless passivity that allows everyone to walk over us. 
No. Meekness is self-possession. A weak person can never be meek because he is never self-possessed. Meekness is the virtue that controls the combative, violent, and pugnacious powers of our nature. And brothers and sisters, the fact is this. If we, if you and I are not growing in meekness, we are not growing in a relationship with Jesus Christ in the way that we ought to be. If we are not living in meekness, we are not becoming more like Jesus. Meekness is not an option. It is a necessity, and it is God's design. It is God's will for you and me as his people. And there is great blessing, God-given, God-breathed blessing to be found in meekness. So, if meekness is not optional, and clearly from Scripture it is not, for the true Christian, I think we need to explore how we grow in meekness and what does godly Christ-honoring meekness look like when it is lived out. And there are four points in that regard that I want us to explore together today. And the first one is this. True meekness requires honest self-assessment. Did you hear that? True meekness requires honest self-assessment. This third beatitude, blessed are the meek, is closely closely connected to the first of the Beatitudes we looked at several weeks ago. The first Beatitude teaches us this, where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 3. So how exactly do meekness and being poor in spirit relate to one another? Well, think about this. We can never begin growing in meekness unless we first come to grips and recognize our own spiritual poverty. Until we come to that place of honest self-assessment. Until we understand our desperate need for a Savior and for God's grace in our own lives. Grace, not just for the moment of salvation, but God's grace for every moment of every day of our lives. The world around us and tragically even some Christians will tell us that we need to learn to love ourselves. That we cannot love others until we first love ourselves. I submit to you that is a distortion of God's truth. We need to come to grips with our depravity, our sinfulness, and our need daily for Christ's saving work in our lives. And to understand that our value, our worth is so incredible because of what God has done. It is not because of who we are or what we have done, we are doing, or will do. We are of such incredible worth that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins and to save us from ourselves. We don't need to love ourselves in some temporal, carnal, human way. We need to understand who it is that ascribes true worth and everlasting, eternal value to us. And it is God. It is God who created us in his own image. And then we need to love him and open ourselves to his salvation. And as we grow in loving God, we come to reject those things in ourselves which stand in opposition to him, including self-service, self-promotion, 
and self-preservation. And as we love him, we grow in meekness, godly meekness. And as we grow, we begin to love others with the same kind of self-giving, sacrificial love with which God has loved each of us, the kind of love that God himself has lavished upon every one of us. 1 John 4, 19 reminds us, we love because he first loved us. The spiritual poverty which Jesus speaks of in the Beatitudes has much to do with honest self-assessments. Growing in meekness has to do with how we relate to God and other people by God's transforming grace at work in us. But it begins with coming to grips with our own neediness, our own brokenness, our spiritual poverty apart from a Savior, apart from the transforming work of Jesus Christ in our lives. Because all of this is, is a prerequisite to growing in godly meekness. Second, true meekness means others' best interests come before me. Now that's something that will sell in our culture. True meekness means others' best interest comes before me. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson in his wonderful book on the Sermon on the Mount says this. Meekness is a controlled desire. Did you hear that? A controlled desire to see others' interest advanced ahead of one's own. This stands in glaring contrast to everything the world and even our own flesh tells us. The world tells us to grab what we can, that the strong come first. Our flesh tells us to fight for our rights, demand what is ours, what we deserve, to look out for number one. And far too often, Christians in the church of Jesus Christ fall into this trap. And sometimes we, and I mean we meaning me too, even try to spiritualize this mindset in order to justify our thinking. Well, most of all, God wants me to be happy. Or God wants me to pursue my dreams. We start sounding more like we're reciting the top tier of Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, self-actualization, than a biblical picture of who God calls us to be because true happiness, true joy is found in submitting to God and doing his will. And true dreams are realized when we submit ourselves to God and our hearts and our lives and what we want become aligned with the heart and will of God. In light of all that God's word has to say about meekness when we think about it, and when we look at ourselves in the church of Jesus Christ, at times, it's actually appalling how little godly meekness we actually see. Because far too often, if we're really honest, meekness is not something which characterizes individual Christians or the church of Jesus Christ at times. And yet in Colossians chapter 3, St. Paul reminds us, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And first Peter 3, God's word reminds us, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, 
so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. When we look at Scripture, meekness is a characteristic of godly men and women throughout history, both Old and New Testaments. I think of Abraham's deference to Lot in Genesis 13, verses 5 through 9, which I want to read to you right now. And Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Do you hear the loving deference in Abram's decision? Or Moses in, in Numbers chapter 12, while he was being attacked by his siblings, Aaron and Miriam, and God brought down judgment upon them in verses 1 through 13 of Numbers 12. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had, woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses, hear this, the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then are you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O oh my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And hear this, and Moses cried to the Lord, Oh God, please heal her, please. In the examples of both Abraham and Moses, there is no seeking of what is theirs or seeking of vindication, no defense of self or demanding justice on human terms. Rather, what we see is selfless love, concern for others best and godly meekness. Meekness, by God's grace, enables us to relate to others well in a way that honors God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Christian martyr in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says this about this verse. The meek renounce all rights of their own for the sake of Jesus Christ. When they are berated, they are quiet. When violence is done to them, they endure it. When they are cast out, they yield. They do not sue for their rights, 
They do not make a scene when injustice is done to them. They do not want rights of their own. What is right for their Lord should be right for them, and only that. Godly meekness means abandoning self-preservation for the best interest of others and for the glory of God. Even for the best interest of those who are our enemies. Third, true meekness is only possible through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself is our supreme and ultimate example of meekness. And Jesus' Jesus' supreme example of this, of meekness, is the cross of Calvary. He was betrayed, beaten, bruised, spat upon, insulted, mocked. As the eternal Son of God, he could have brought an end to all of this at any instant. He could have called down judgment. But instead, when his hands and feet were pierced, he prayed for his enemies. That includes you and me because he was bearing the punishment and judgment of my sin and your sin in that very moment. And he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Every Sunday in the Eucharistic prayer of consecration, which we'll hear prayed in just a little while, we hear these words, in obedience to your will, he stretched out his arms upon the cross and he offered himself once for all. Don't let anyone ever convince you that true godly meekness is weakness. Because true meekness is the ultimate demonstration of godly strength and godly character. Jesus is not only our perfect example, he is also our only means to experience and grow in meekness. Because the kind of meekness that Jesus talks about here in the Sermon on the Mount, the kind of meekness we see spoken of and taught in scripture is totally foreign to you and me. True godly meekness is only possible through Christ's transforming work in our lives and by the power of God's grace and his spirit at work in us. Romans chapter 8 verse 29 tells us that as believers, we are predestined to be conformed to the likeness of God's son. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That means we are to grow in meekness. We are to grow. God's will for us is to grow to be more like Jesus. And that means for every true Christian, for every single one of us who knows Christ, meekness, godly meekness is not optional. It is God's mandate for you and me in Christ. And then finally, true meekness is rewarded. Yes, true meekness is rewarded. What's the reward? The meek shall inherit the earth. What Jesus says here connects this to the biblical concept of land, but not this world as we know it now, rather to the new heaven and the new earth. When, that day when Christ's kingdom rule is ultimately and forever established, even as we read in Revelation chapter 21, that I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from God, from the throne, excuse me, a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, 
the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I recognize very fully today that this is a hard word. And yet it should also be an encouraging word because this is God's will. This is God's design for us as we are conformed to the image of Jesus. And if God wills that for us by his power, he will bring it to pass if we submit ourselves and yield to him and to that molding and reshaping that he does in us day by day. And when we grow in meekness, this world the stuff of this world, the things in it, this world's ways, more and more and more, they lose their grip on us. They lose their power over us and we find Jesus holding us more and more closely. And we grow to that place where we find we have no need for more of the stuff of this world. We have no need for more of the junk in this world. Our egos are no longer inflated and fueled by the desires for more of this world, carnal desires. And instead, God replaces those, those fleshly desires with his peace and godly contentment, which is great gain. And we continue to desire more and more and more of Jesus. We find that Christ is indeed our all in all. And he is the source and supplier of all that we truly need. And from that place of peace and contentment, knowing Jesus alone is our source and supply, we are free. We are free of self. We are free of being tethered to the stuff of this world. We are free to love God and through God's power in us, we are free to love others, even our own enemies, real or perceived. This is God's heart and will for us. It's incredibly counterculture. It sounds impossible because in the natural it is. And yet God promises us, if he calls us to this, if Jesus our Lord gave us this promise, then it is possible as we continue to yield and surrender ourselves to him and see him remake us day by day as individuals, as families, as a church family into his image to be used more and more in his hands for his kingdom work. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your promise. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And Father, we recognize how far we fall short of this calling at times. It's a hard word, and yet it is a hopeful word and an encouraging word, because Father, you promise us through through the cross of Christ and the transforming work of your grace and the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells in us, that you are more than willing to bring this to pass, that this is your will for us in Christ Jesus. So Lord, may we throw open our arms, may we throw open our lives to, to more being, being more fully yielded to you, to growing in godly humility and godly meekness and the ways of your kingdom 
so that the ways of this world and all of its junk have no hold over us, but we are free, free to serve you, free to love you more fully, and free to love others even as you have loved us first. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.